Hey there, welcome to the Pine Island Experience Podcast. I'm Joanna Anderson with my husband, Trigby. Each of our episodes will be conversations with fellow Pine Islanders. The goal of our podcast is to share with you our experiences, what we have found to be fun, and what makes the Pine Island Experience so unique. The one I rescued was the one from uh, Gaunt last year. Gaunt was, uh, I was thrilled that we had three eaglets in one nest. Um, it happens, but it doesn't happen as often as just two. And uh, being a first-year nest, the nest was quite small. So as the eaglets grew and they start flapping their wings and bouncing up and down and getting ready to fledge, one of them got knocked out of the nest. And I went over there and I said, Something's wrong. There's only two in the nest. They're so big, they can't hide now. Like When they're first born, a lot of times you won't even see them for two weeks because they won't even get their head above the rim of the nest. But these eaglets were big, and I knew something was wrong. So I came back, got my boots, put on some long pants because there's so much poison ivy over there, and went over and uh, walked in, found the eaglet sitting at the base of the tree, in a patch of poison ivy. And it just looked up at me like, you're here to help, aren't you? <laughs> and I, I got it and um, brought it back and took it over to Crow. And it was only dehydrated. It had only been out of the nest for a little while. But again, if I didn't find it, it wouldn't have survived the night because here coyotes are prevalent and they would, they would have been found by coyotes for sure. That was Jerry Hook describing how he found the eaglet that fell out of its nest last year. Jerry is an Audubon Eagle Watch volunteer and a nature and wildlife photographer. Jerry watches his eagles in their nests diligently every year, starting with their return to the nest, then the birth of their eaglets, and finally watching the eaglet's amazing three-month development. As a wildlife photographer, Jerry shares eagles' photos on many Pine Island Facebook pages, much to the delight of Pine Islanders. And now, here is Jerry Hook. We're here with our friend Jerry Hook, Audubon uh, Watch volunteer and photographer, among other things. I'm sure you can fill us in on, but thank you very much for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you and hearing you on the podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. So how we get started is we start at the beginning, and we want to know all about you before you came to Pine Island, You would, um, where you grew up where you went to school, what uh, what your jobs were, um, uh, and, and all your activities, if you could fill us in on that. Well, that's the easy part. I was um, born and raised in the Casco Mountains in New York, a little paper mill town called Napanock, about 700 people. Uh, unfortunately, the paper mill burnt down in 1970, but I was in college and wasn't there, but my family lived directly across the street from the paper mill, and the fire department spent most of their time watering down our house so that it wouldn't burn down because it was so close to the uh, paper mill. But uh, when I graduated from high school, I went to college in Boston at Northeastern University, which was a great experience because it's a cooperative education school. So I was basically in school for three months working, and I was fortunate to get a job in my chosen profession which was environmental engineering. So I'd work for three months and then go back to school for three months and um, graduated that way. 
and then immediately went on to graduate school at the University of North Carolina, someplace I've always wanted to go. There was a particular professor down there that I really wanted to have. I got him to be my thesis advisor, and uh, it was a great experience. I did my master's degree in one year, and they told me that nobody does it in less than a year and a half. We prefer you to be there two years. I said, no, I'm going to be done in one year, and I did. I finished it in one year and, and went on. And then uh, I was very fortunate that I uh, got a position at the company that I wanted to work for. Uh, the company was called Stearns & Wheeler. They're environmental engineers and scientists. And they're located in Casanova, New York, which is a very small community to find a, a, a nationally recognized engineering firm in a small town of less than 3,000 people. Wow. was uh, really unique. And uh, I remember to this day, they're going up there for an interview. Nancy and I were married. We got married when I was in graduate school. And uh, we were driving up there. And the choices was go back to work in Boston or this company, and I did apply to one other company out in Oregon, but she didn't want to go to Oregon at all. And as we drove in, we drove up over the hills, we came on, and we saw Casanova Lake and a white church steeple. She just said, I want to live here. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, the interview was was fine. I, I I knew the people already. It was really a formality to take the, take the interview, and they offered me a position. And uh, I worked there my whole career. I never left there. And uh, Became the, um, we were a partnership in the beginning until we formed an LLC, a limited liability company. And then I became the president of the company and was president until I retired. And it's been 10 years now that I've been retired. So. Time flies, huh? It does. It does. Well, you still consult for them, though, don't I you? I did up until January. Uh, I was on, the, on books as a consultant, basically still doing some new business development. Work, um, introducing them to people that I knew, the people that took over. And um, one of our big clients was the Coca-Cola company. And I traveled all over the world with them. Then now I've been to 47 different countries and most of them have been with them. He talked about photography. Mm -hmm. I always took my cameras with me. So when we got to countries like Rwanda, I'd have my cameras, and I said, I'm here, I'm staying for a couple of days, <laughs> and getting around the countryside and, and doing some photography. So I was fortunate to be able to go to a lot of countries that people don't, they're not on your tourist list, like places like Nigeria and Rwanda and Cameroon and, and uh, Uganda and, and Angola, you know, places like that, because we were basically doing work for developing countries and Coca-Cola was a very big proponent of providing safe drinking water in these areas. Now, true, they also were bottling, and they were bottling Coca-Cola and selling Coca-Cola, but they gave back a lot to the community. I, I never felt bad about working with Coca-Cola, um, especially the person that we work with directly. We were doing a lot of education. We developed the educational programs for Coca-Cola, and then I was asked to come along and present them. And even after I became the president, they still wanted me to do it, and I still wanted to do it. So it was of great. Of course, you could take pictures. Yeah, I got to get some good photographs, and it gave me a real good introduction to Africa also. So um, Africa is one of my places that I go back to. And I very often don't go back to the same place because there's so many places in the world to go and see. Mm -hmm. But I've been to 11 of the countries in Africa, and um, I actually started for a while uh, before we moved here to Pine Island. I was 
taking groups over about six people once a year over to Africa for photo safaris. And I got really good contacts over there that I could set it up and, and do it. And uh, it never, Africa never disappointed. No. It was always great. I mean, wildlife is unique to the world and uh, the people are so friendly. I mean, they're extremely, extremely friendly. And the company I worked with was very good because they had private camps on the conservancies that were owned by the Maasai people and they only employed Maasai people. So when you got there, you weren't dealing with people that came from Great Britain or something like that. You were dealing with the locals and I've made some really good lifelong friends of the Maasai people over there. And when I go over now, they go, is Jerry coming back this year? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how cool is that? But when, when did you first discover photography? How old were you? I was probably like about 10th grade in high school. Yeah. And I just really started it because our family started taking some trips. And the first one was we went up to Montreal. We had never, I've never been out of the United States. And we went up to Montreal. I just took on the role of being a family photographer that recorded our vacations. And back then I had one of those Polaroid cameras that, after the film came out, you had to take and put the liquid on it and <laughs> preserve it and, and that. You know, it's just something I just love to do. So I just uh, kept doing it. And then when I went to college, I bought my first 35-millimeter camera. It was a Minolta SRT 101. I still have it. Mm-hmm. It's in my little collection of cameras I have. And, uh, was it film or digital? It was, of course, it was film yeah. back then, okay. yeah. It was, uh, and it was uh, totally manual. I mean, there was... Nothing electronic about it at all. Back when, that's the way photography should be, though. I'm not a proponent of all this digital imaging and mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, I use digital cameras now. All I do is I develop them like I tell people what I do with Lightroom is I develop it the way you would have developed it in a dark room. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's pretty much what I do. Once in a while, I'll do something like a little unique. I, I took a, a photograph of a bald eagle that I just thought that this would look great in black and white. But I also thought if I left the beak yellow and the feet yellow and the eye yellow, it would really stand out. And it came out so nice that it was just like, oh, that literally looks good. Yeah. And it's 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 still the actual thing that you saw. Yes. Really. Yep. You know. That also harkens back yep. to the day where you had to pay attention to the lens and you were guesstimating or estimating the distance of the subject from your lens because you know, that controlled what was in focus or out of focus and those kinds of things. Understanding how light or bright or gray or dull it was that day and setting your aperture and so mm-hmm. forth. In a way, the automation has helped, but I also think it's kind of hurt a little bit because I don't know that people learn enough exactly. about how the camera's working and what the result resulting image will or will not be based upon those settings. Yeah, you're absolutely right um, with that because, you know, back then you're always tied into the film, too. And if you put a roll of 64, you know, back then, 64-speed film into your camera, that's what you shot at. You mm-hmm. couldn't take that and change it halfway through the film. Now with digital cameras, I can shoot at ISO 100, go to 800, go to 3200, all in the same time. So it's uh, yeah, it offers a lot more flexibility. But, um, you know, I have some friends that are, we're professional photographers that really have gotten out of the business now because they say the digital camera, it, everybody has a camera, mm-hmm. whether it's a cell phone or a camera, 
and they take so many pictures that at a wedding, they're going to get enough good ones so that uh, it's kind of really hurt the professional photography market. You probably went through this. I remember buying a roll of 36 and it was like Panex or Triex. I think one was like about 100. The other one was like 400, you know, if it's low yep. light or speed stuff. And I got into clouds for a while. And so it was the first uh, DSLR. And I got, I think it was an 81A red filter. I can't remember. It was something like that because it would increase the contrast of the right. cloud against That's the blue right. sky. And like laying on my folks' driveway. And so you saved up to buy the 36 roll of film. And I don't think people remember or appreciate this. So you had to spend money there. Then you had to spend money to get, to get it developed and get like a contact sheet. Then you had to review those, decide what you wanted, and then you need to buy prints. This was not a cheap <laughs> no. hobby for a kid to get started in, but the creativity certainly was there. And I think the, it probably escalated the learning because at some point in time, you're like, I can't afford to be wasting 36 frames on every 36 scroll. Yeah. And my very first trip to Africa, not on business, but just for pleasure on a photo safari, I took 86 rolls of film with me. Did you? And back then, you had to put them in lead bags yes. in order to get them through the x-rays at the <laughs> airports. And then when I came back, the 86 rolls of film cost me over $2,000 to develop. <gasps> so it, today, now, with a digital camera, I, I go out and I'll shoot 200, 300 mm -hmm. frames and come back and throw 90% of them away on my computer right and away. the memory card's still good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the memory card's still good. It didn't cost you anything. No. It was your time. When did you discover Pine Island? Well, we discovered Pine Island probably about eight years ago. We were RVing um, before we lived here on Pine Island. Uh, we had a motorhome, a nice big motorhome, 35 foot, and we traveled around the country for the winter after retirement. And uh, it seemed like every year we'd end up back on Pine Island. We found Pine Island just because we were going along the Gulf Coast and we were looking for a campground and we saw the KOA on, on mm -hmm. Pine Island. So we stopped there and we probably spent two weeks the first year here. And then the next time we were in Florida, we decided to come back to Pine Island again and maybe spend a little bit longer time. And then finally we were staying like about a month on, on Pine Island at the KOA. Finally, my wife, Nancy, got tired of traveling around. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I loved going to different places. And uh, she said, I'm just tired of being two weeks here and two weeks there. We don't get to make any friends. We're packing up. We're moving again. So we decided that, well, if we're going to stay in one location, we're not going to live in the motorhome. We're going to look for a house. So she said, well, I'd like to go back to Pine Island because she, we did develop a lot of friends here on Pine Island. And she used to sing at the KOA. They had the Sunday night sing-along. And she used to go down there and she would sing songs and she made a lot of friends through that with her music. So um, we just decided to look on Pine Island and found the house just down the road here from you guys. And uh, that was four years ago. This is our fourth year now on, on Pine Island. Been through one hurricane in four years. <laughs> no more. <laughs> no more. through anymore. No. So, so that's our, and we, we liked it because we did look a few other areas, but this was the only area that was, more country. It was more rural. It's not a big tourist base island. I mean, the fact that you can go a half mile up the road and there's cattle and there's horses and there's palm trees, nurseries, and 
you know, mangoes growing all right. over the place and that. So it was, it was what we were looking for. Well, not to forget the wildlife for you and your photography. I, I, mean, I knew a little bit about the eagles before buying it, but mm -hmm. once we moved here, um, that's when I joined Audubon's Eagle Watch program. And uh, I just, it, it really gives me a lot of incentive every day to go out and, and check on the eagles. I don't need to check on them as often as I do, but I, I'd like to go out. This morning I was out sure. checking. I checked three nests this morning. And this time of year is pretty easy because now the eaglets are there and the parents are flying in and out with fish. So it's, it's always uh, something exciting to watch. Well, when they first come back, you're out chasing them. You know, on your bike. I mean, you're trying to find them. You know, yeah. and I know that you're returning in the same nest, and especially now after the hurricane. Now you found ours. Yes, from before I, I, Ian. Yep. Um, what we call our eagles in the neighborhood or mm -hmm. have uh, relocated. They relocated last year, of course. After Ian, every nest on the island was destroyed. Every eagle nest, every great down nest, every osprey nest, everything blew down. A lot of them, the trees blew down also. Mm -hmm. So. The eagles had to rebuild. Some of them rebuilt in the same trees where they were still standing. Uh, the ones over in the Galt Preserve, they were fortunate. Their tree is still still standing. Um, the tree is dead now. It used to be alive. Oh. But uh, they rebuilt in the same, the same tree. Our eagles relocated. As the eagle flies, it's probably only a mile from here. But right. by car to get over there and then to hike in, it's, it's probably closer to two miles from here. But even this morning, uh, one of the eagles came back and was in the big dead tree down the road oh. where they, they, they seem to always come back and visit. Um, I've seen that with the other nests where eagles had to relocate. And one of the ways of finding them is they come back to the area and then I watch to see what direction they, they fly mm -hmm. off in. You can usually tell, after you get to know them, you can tell whether they're flying back to the nest or they're flying to look and search for fish or food or, or something. And uh, that's how I found these. And unfortunately, last year, our eagles got attacked by a great horned owl. The great horned owls are ferocious. And uh, they attacked a nest and knocked one of the eaglets out of the nest, grabbed the other one. Uh, the other second one we never found, but the first one was recovered and uh, taken over to Crow, the mm -hmm. Center for Rehabilitation of Wildlife in Sanibel Island. And it was nursed back to health and relocated, so it did it did survive. Well, it's a good thing you were watching them because didn't you called Crow too, I think, didn't you? Well, that one I didn't. That one okay. another uh, another eagle watcher happened to be there and witnessed the great horned owl attack and realized that the one got fell, fallen out of the nest. Uh, the one I rescued was the one from uh, Gaunt last year. Okay, Gaunt was. Uh, I was thrilled that we had three eaglets in one nest. Um, it happens, but it doesn't happen as often as just two. And uh, being a first-year nest, the nest was quite small. So as the eaglets grew and they start flapping their wings and bouncing up and down and getting ready to fledge, one of them got knocked out of the nest. And I went over there and I said, something's wrong. There's only two in the nest. They're so big they can't hide now. Like mm -hmm. When they're first born... A lot of times you won't even see them for two weeks because they won't even get their head above the rim of the nest. But these eaglets were big, and I knew something was wrong. So I came back, got my boots, put on some long pants because there's so much poison ivy over there, and <laughs> went over and uh, 
walked in, found the eaglet sitting at the base of the tree in a patch of poison ivy. Of course. And it just looked up at me like, you're here to help, aren't you? <laughs> and I, I got it and um, brought it back and took it over to Crow. And it was only dehydrated. It had only been out of the nest for a little while. But again, if I didn't find it, it wouldn't have survived the night because here coyotes are yeah. prevalent and they would it would have been found by coyotes for sure. You saved its little and, life. Uh, so we, it was um, rehydrated. And then uh, we got Florida Fish and Wildlife involved. And they, I wanted to put it back in the same nest. Rightfully so, they said, no, the nest is too small. If we put it back there, it probably will get knocked out again. And who knows if somebody would discover it. So they actually relocated it up in North Tampa. And they put it in a nest up there. Uh, fortunately, eagles adopt young. They don't even question it. They come back and then all of a sudden there's another eaglet in the nest. And they just eat it. So it's um, it's very common for them to relocate. And the interesting thing is this year, about two weeks ago, uh, the director for the Florida Eagle Watch program sent me an email with a photograph and said, Jerry, I thought you would like to see this. Your eaglet was spotted at the Circle B Bar Ranch in Lakeland, Florida. And what they do is whenever... In, in, a bird is rescued, they band it. And the photograph was detailed enough that they could see the band and they knew it was my eaglet. So she sent me, she said, I wanted you to know your eaglet survived and is doing well. So I got to take a ride up the Circle B yeah. Bar Ranch to see if I can yeah. see my eaglet. Yeah. 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 So that was a, a real nice ending to the story. That's very nice. Yeah. So when did you first learn about the Audubon Society and then how did you get uh, hooked up with them into, you know, the process of volunteering you do today? Oh, when it was actually before we bought the house, we were coming down here to look at homes and notice someone with a camera. And then I see somebody with a, a camera that is a substantial camera. I stopped and talked and it happened to be Michelle Murphy. And um, she was in the Florida Eagle Watch program. And she said, Jerry, you know, they need extra volunteers. So I contacted the uh, Florida Audubon Society and um, made arrangements to take the course. It's about a two-hour course you, you take on, and you can do it online and it's, you know, visual uh, video. And uh, got to be an Audubon Eagle Watcher and told me what my duties and responsibilities were and that. So when I just started the next season, I started doing it and uh, added more nests and more nests because I like to explore. I mean, I'll get up in the morning, and, and Nancy said, where are you going? And Nancy's my wife. She says, where are you going? I'm going out to explore. And I'll just go and go places that I haven't been before. And on Pine Island, there's so many dirt roads that go way mm -hmm. back in that you never you never know about. And uh, I'm hoping one day to either see a bobcat on Pine Island or a panther. I've heard that a panther has been spotted on Pine Island. but um, Florida panther? Florida Panther, oh, okay. but that may or may not be true. I don't, I don't know that for a fact. But uh, anyway, I know there are bobcats on there. There, there are I'd bobcats. Like to, I'd like to see a bobcat in Florida. Jack. They look just like a big kitty. Excuse me. They look like a big kid, kitty. I ran into oh, them, yeah. not here, but in Tampa. 
Yeah, I and I said that's not a kitty when I got close to it. Two years ago, I got some great photos of a bobcat with some two kittens, Mm. and um, I made the mistake. I was on a in a preserve, and I was sitting and just waiting, and I had my camera, and it was on a beanbag, and people started walking by, and they said, "What are you doing?" Because they couldn't see anything I was photographing. I said, well, there was a mother bobcat. She just went in there. I could hear her calling for her kittens. So I said, I'm sitting here waiting. Well, by the time they came out, there was about six people. And as soon as the kitten came out in the open, people started screaming, there it is, there it is. Turned right around and ran. Fortunately, I got off a couple of shots before it was scared off. But uh, They didn't know any better. Yeah. The people. So now I don't tell people. <laughs> I even keep some of the eagle nest locations kind of quiet, especially in the beginning when they lay the eggs and are sitting on eggs. That's, that's the time where if they get scared off, the eggs may not hatch, um, you know, because they need to keep them, keep the eggs warm for about 30, 34 days before they hatch. So that's a long period of time. So I don't send people to eagle nests there. When people ask me, just like this morning, there was a group of about five or six people over at Galt, and they wanted to go into the eagle nest. And I said, well, you can't. There's, there's a sign there that says no, no trespassing past this sign because of the eagle nest. But I said, if you want to see them, I sent them down to the Civic Center because the eagle nest there is right there. It's in a, The tree is in a trailer park. There's a trailer right underneath it. People are coming and going all the time. I said, just go down there, park at the Civic Center, face north, and you'll see the eagles. So they were really happy. And then after I left Gaul, I went down there to see if they were there. And they were there and got to see the eagles. So they were happy. How many eaglets are in there? There's one at um, the Civic Center. Just one? Yeah. Right now we have 11 in eight nests on the island. Okay. Um, I had 11 nests last year that I monitored. The one over on Picnic Island is now ospreys are in it. So I don't know where the eagles have gone. the one, there's another one at a park called Chapin Park way up in Boquiria. The tree fell down last year after they built a nest in it. They rebuilt in a tree that I could have pushed it over. It was so, so bad. We had some high winds one night, about 40, 50 miles an hour, and the tree came down with two eaglets in it. I knew something was going to happen to that nest, so I went up the very next morning, and it was down. I looked around for the eaglets, and I found the remains of the eaglets. So again, a coyote or a bobcat got them. Then there was another nest where the nest came down and they rebuilt somewhere, but I, or they didn't come back. I don't know. Um, I just can't find them. There's places on Pine Island you just can't get to. Mm -hmm. Which is, I love that fact about Pine Island that it's like that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we've got the, Last year, we did really good. Last year, with 11 nests, we had 16 eaglets, and 13 of the 16 survived. We yep. lost the two in the nest that came down, yep. and the one the great horned owl got. Yeah. That's pretty good? That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of your duties as a volunteer for them? Well, my the duties are primarily to monitor and and um, get data on the, eagle, on the eagles. It's... It, it works in different phases depending on the stage. So in the beginning, you're looking at we're at nest construction, nest rebuilding, um, adding to the nest. Uh, then it's uh, 
you can tell when they, they're on eggs because the, the one eagle will, you know, just stay there for like 30. The other eagle will come in and, and, and take over for a little while, but it's primarily the female that, that does it. And I'm actually, I got a photograph this year that I've never seen this before. They have a brooding patch where they have skin that they can put directly in contact with the eggs to help keep the eggs warm mm. because the feathers are insulators. And I got a picture of the eagle that I could actually see the brooding patch. And I said, oh. I've never seen that before on an eagle. Oh. So that was kind of unique. Um, then it gets, after the eggs hatch, that's when it gets really interesting. Because now you got an eaglet that needs to be fed day one. And, you know, it's not like a mammal that they can nurse them. They have to go out and get food and bring food back. And that's when you really start to get the activity of the eagles flying in and feeding the young. And and that, and, and then when the eagle eaglets are um, starting to get ready to fledge. They're very active in the nest and they're bouncing around, they're testing their wings. So our goal is we identify how many eaglets are born and then there's only two outcomes, either the eaglets fledge or they perish. And that's what we're trying to provide the data to see how many of the nest. And there's a lot of nests in Florida. There's 1,643 last year um, nesting pairs in, in the state of Florida. Florida has the third highest density of eagles of any of the states in the United States. Alaska's first, Minnesota's second, and Florida's third. And most people don't think of Florida as an eagle state. No, you know, they that's think amazing. Of as being cold weather areas, but uh, there's it's just because there's so much water here, there's so much food for them. And unfortunately, the biggest threat to eagles today is development. And it's um, loss of loss of good nesting trees and stuff, and we lost a lot of good nesting trees with Hurricane Ian. And you talked about traveling and always taking your camera with. Um, then have those primarily been for your own enjoyment, or have you also sold uh, photographs to people, or, or took a little bit of your kind of journey as a photographer? Without being big-headed, I classify myself as an advanced advanced amateur nature and wildlife photographer. I do have a website, but now that social media is so big and popular, I really haven't updated it in well over a year. Uh, now I post my photos on Facebook. I belong to probably a dozen different Facebook groups. A lot of them are, are photography-based Facebook groups, but some of them are here. Um, the Pine Island Photo Club, I'm a member of the Pine Island Photo Club. Another one here is the... Um, Sunsets of Pine Island and Matt Lachey Club. Um, I like, I love taking pictures of sunrises and sunsets. And not many people take sun sunrises, so I post the sunrise photos on there because I'm up that that time of day anyway. Um, and then of course we have our local St. Jude's um, POA Facebook mm -hmm. page, and, and then I have my friends list, and I have a photo club back north, Swamp Snappers Photo Club, that I'm. <laughs> it's. Uh, in the Great Swamp Conservancy. We're a subgroup to the Great Swamp Conservancy. And uh, I posted that, and they like seeing some of the photos from Florida and stuff as we travel around. But uh, as far as selling, if somebody is interested, I'll sell them at my cost. I, I don't do it to make money. I'm not a professional photographer. I would love to be, but I just, at this stage of my life, just try to start a career and get it going as a photographer. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I've seen professional photographers. They are a step above me. I'm not. I'm not in their same class, really. And uh, maybe if I get my new camera, I'll 
<laughs> but I do, it does seem like a bit of a challenge in that, to your point, uh, mobile phones, now you can always see somebody else's photo, whether it's Facebook or some other posting. And I think the, um, the value and possibly the appreciation of a printed piece of artwork has gone down um, compared to where it used to be. I mean, it seems, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like they used to be valued more highly, you know, like they wanted a print, uh, whether to frame it or do something with or as a memory. And now, you know, your photo albums and you can store thousands upon thousands of pictures. And it's also too, there's is it like, what's it called? Instant gratification. They look at the photo and it's done. And I think probably stuff that you've done is, and other wildlife, it, it's like, it, it was, it's just a great time and you appreciate mother nature and the animals and how they're surviving. And it means a little bit more, but I, like you look on the phone and I think people dismiss stuff right way too quickly. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think so too. But I, I, I don't even print that many because how many prints can you have in your house? Right. <laughs> but uh, what I enjoy doing though is when I get back from a, a trip specifically for something, like I went this summer uh, to Alaska well, in September. I went up during what they call fat bear season because the bears have been eating salmon all uh -huh all the summer long and they are just rotund they are it's amazing how much weight they put on but they look so great and they're so healthy so uh when i got back i put together a photo book okay. so that when people come it's like a little coffee table book but i just do it for myself i just use shutterfly and mm -hmm. and put them together but it's nice to have that to, so somebody comes in you don't have to get out and run through slides on your camera or on your computer to show them you can yeah. just for that so I, I usually do a photo book of uh, of the trips that i take specifically for i used to do one for every winter when we traveled around but now that i stay here in florida i don't i don't do one that that's incredible you know and i've seen your pictures and 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 with the club that you're in i know you did a presentation that you shared with me that i found very valuable for for people things they need to know about learning photography yeah i like teaching people I, about photography. I've, I've helped quite a few people. And with my photo club up, up north, the Swamp Snappers, there, I'm actually the program director for the photo club. So every month I set the program and I probably end up doing about 75% of it myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not going to be there for the total eclipse, but total eclipse comes right through New York. It comes right through where the area we live in. So I, I did arrange program for the photo club on April 8th and they got they have the location and we got about 16 people going and I put together photo tips on how to photograph the total eclipse because that is tricky and then my first time was uh in Sweetwater Tennessee uh, I, I keep telling people I drove 13 hours for two minutes and 37 <laughs> seconds of total eclipse, <laughs> which I did. And uh, but it was worth it, wasn't it? It was worth it. It is. I, I would recommend anybody that can has it this year. You know, it'll be another seven or eight years again before it comes across the United States. But it it starts in Texas and it goes up through um, along like the, the Mississippi and then across uh, Illinois and uh, New York and then up through. Um, exits the United States and Maine, but if you can get there, it's an experience of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I, everybody should have the good fortune of seeing one. And the thing is, um, I, I was there, and the eclipse is starting, 
And we, I, I said to everybody, don't go any place where there's streetlights because streetlights will come on. Right. And you don't want the, the light pollution. Well, I was out in this big field, and before the eclipse, the birds are singing, uh, everything's going on, you hear all this. The total eclipse comes, it's just dead silent. The birds stop. It's just magic. They're like, what's it's, going on? It's right? like, it's midnight. Yeah. They, they don't know what's going on. <laughs> and But it was just so eerie and so so great. And I would say I've never photographed an eclipse before. I really, You can't rely on your autofocus. You can't rely on your light meter. So you're talking about, you know, going back to the days where, you look at the light, you try to understand the light, and you set it. And I was able to get some great photographs. Uh, there's, and I told everybody in the, in our camera club, I, I sent them all um, solar glasses. I said, you got to have them. So I, I got solar glasses and gave everybody oh, a pair of nice. solar glasses. I said, first thing and most important is safety. When the partial eclipse is occurring, you still can't look at the sun. Don't, you know. Yeah, you can glance at the sun any day, you know, just for a second, but you can't stare at the sun like you do during an eclipse. I said, so safety is the most important thing. But then when you get to the total total eclipse, I said, there's three things you want to look for. One is called Bailey's beads. The other one is, is um, super corona. And then the diamond ring as the eclipse is, is the sun is exiting behind, from behind the moon. I said, for all of those, you can look at it. You can photograph them. I said, don't fall into the thing where the only way you see the eclipse is through your viewfinder and your camera. It's an experience to enjoy. I said, in New York, they're going to have a little over three minutes. It's like three minutes and 20 seconds, which is pretty long. I said, you can get a lot of photographs in three minutes and 20 seconds, but take your eye away from the viewfinder and look at the eclipse and enjoy the eclipse. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a great experience. And I've read that same tip just for, from taking pictures. Yeah. Quit just looking through your viewfinder. Look around mm -hmm. and enjoy it and yep. continue. But they, but I think three minutes isn't very long to get, because you're trying to remember everything you're supposed to be doing to focus on that picture. But you sent them all tips. I got them tips, yeah. That I'm, was very nice yeah. of you. Hopefully they'll get some good photographs. But before I left, I showed them my photographs of the eclipse and what to look for. Yeah, they need to look yeah. like this, yeah. you told them, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, too bad you're going to miss it. Well, I've been thinking about flying up, but I, if I hadn't ever seen one, I would definitely have done it. Yeah. I'd go up and stay up there for a week and then come back or something. But having done the one time, you're subject to the weather. April right. in New York is not necessarily a great time no. of weather. Of having, you know, we still get the impacts of the weather coming off of Lake Ontario. And, um, you know, I, I'm hoping they get a great day. You don't want it to be a cloudy night either, do you? No, it can't be cloudy. It, no, then it's, it's got to be clear. Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate. I, it, even going down to Sweetwater, Tennessee, yeah. you take the chance. I'm driving 13 hours. The weather forecast said it was going to be good. But, mm -hmm. you know, fortunately, it was beautiful. It was yeah. a cloud in the sky. Are you still, I remember you would go take your van to the Everglades or, I mean, are you still well, we, taking We got rid of our van. Oh. Yeah, we don't have the van anymore now. I go, I still do. I, I still go over to the East Coast. There's many places on the East Coast of Florida that I'd love to go to. Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge mm -hmm. is, is one of them. Um, Orlando Wetlands is, is another one that I go to. Uh, Blue Heron Wetlands is another one I'll go to over there. Um, so, and then I love going down, and I will be doing it in March. A uh, place called Lakota Hatchie is a great, great, great place. It's a rookery, and... Uh, 
anybody who wants to go there. You can actually, this year they've installed a, a camera, so you can actually go online to Lakota um, Hatchie Wildlife Refuge, and you can see the birds. They have a rookery, and it's a boardwalk, and the boardwalk is elevated, so you're at the nest level. Oh, wow. And you can see the baby um, um, egrets, the baby herons, the baby wood storks. Uh, you get lucky, you can see some roseate spoonbill babies. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I go there every year, and around there, I go to um, also Green K. And that's where I photographed the uh, bobcat, the baby bobcats, mm -hmm. was at Green K. And then there's another place out there called Wakahatchee uh, um, that I go to, which is a, a wildlife management area. It's not mm -hmm. a wildlife refuge. But, uh, well, there's a so ton of places and, for you to go to. There's, Florida has a lot of great places. Yeah. Yep. So, the uh, St. Augustine Zoo has an elevated boardwalk through their rookery. Excuse me. Um, that's at the alligator farm. Yes, excuse me, at the alligator farm. And, yes. You know, at first we say... It seems like, well, why would they, build? but then we, and to your point, you're up at nest level. It just changes what you can do with the photographs and stuff, because, you know, you're right. Some of them are too small to see above the nest or, uh, you know, the parents naturally protecting them and, and to be up on that level. And uh, I think one year we got like a photographer's pass and went in before the general public came in. Well, everybody's there being really, really quiet and they don't have your experience, you know, people yelling, there they are, look at that yeah. baby and. And scaring them. Plus the fact that I think with the boardwalk up there, the birds that are nesting there are probably more used to human traffic because they know you're constrained to that boardwalk and you you can't walk over and get them. Yeah, even the bald eagles. I mean, they're um, you take the ones that are down there at the Civic Center. They're right in the trailer park. Mm -hmm. They become acclimated to people. They're used to the people going by. I mean, you know, here in St. James City, everybody's got a golf cart. They ride back and forth in the streets. They have music at the Civic Center. <laughs> you know, so the eagles do get adjusted to it, but mm -hmm. it's the eagles that are out in the wild where if you approach them, you would disturb them. And, you know, people ask me, well, you know, how close can I get to an eagle's nest? Well, there is no hard and fast legal rule about it now. But if you're close enough that you disturb them and you cause the eagles to leave the nest and it could cause the um, babies to die. either die or the eggs not to hatch, then you're in violation of the federal law. And so it's really, you need to stay back. And the rule of thumb is, is 100 meters, which is about 330 feet to save, stay from a nest. And I tell people, you don't want to get any closer than that anyway, because the nests are way up there. And if you get too close, you can't see anything. You need to be back. You need to be with a pair of binoculars. And that's the best way to observe a nest is mm -hmm. to stay back and, and keep your distance from it and observe it. And I said, if you're patient, you'll see something happen. And I said, as far as getting eagles close, the other day I was over at Galt and I was back uh, quite a ways, actually very near to where my car was. And I was set up there and looking at him with a pair of binoculars. And the eagle left the nest. He came and flew and landed in a tree right above my head. <laughs> So if you're patient, you know, you yeah. may get the eagles come to you instead of, and that's true with any, any wildlife. If you, you sit there and you're patient and they accept you into their environment, then right. they're going to act natural. You, right. you don't want them to be disturbed and acting unnatural. I assume you have to be quiet and other common sense things, right? I mean, you don't want to create noise or, because then they're not going to 
either leave the nest or they would I mean, they wouldn't have flown over you. I'm sure you were pretty much standing there quietly, simply. Absurd. Oh yeah, yeah. And I also, because of the mosquitoes are so bad here, I I have a mosquito jacket that really acts kind of like camouflage because it breaks my silhouette up completely. You can't see my face. Um, so yeah, when I'm sitting still, I just look like another blob out there instead of a person. Right. Uh, but uh, I, mean, I hate the mosquitoes. <laughs> Oh. And they're terrible here, aren't they? Just terrible. But I think I saw a helicopter today spraying. They were spraying today, yeah. yeah. I saw that. Yeah. So that's good news. One thing I've been dying to ask you is what was it like standing in a field of 400,000 oh. penguins? Come on. Yeah. What was that like? Were they as tall as you? or No, no. These, these are, are all little? These are Gen, gen 2 penguins. Okay. Um, I saw Chinstaps chin and Gen 2s primarily on that trip, but um, it, it, that was fantastic. I mean, I, I had, I've been to 47 countries and I had been to six of the seven continents. I had never been to Antarctica. And my friend at Coca-Cola had gone to An Antarctica and he was telling me about it. And I said, that's it, I'm going to Antarctica. And fortunately enough, being retired, I was able to make plans at the last minute. And because I made my plans to go, a week before the boat was going to leave, I got it for half price. So it was really a great deal. And uh, I was by myself, and I met some other people on the ship that were by themselves. And one night they, they said, oh, this is a great trip, but it's so expensive. And I sitting there with a smile on my face, and they said, what? And they said, well, how much did you pay? And they told me, and I said, oh, how much I paid? And they go, what? How did you do that? Oh. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's it's just being able to take advantage of and especially when you travel single, and I do a lot of travel single, a lot of places will charge you a single supplement. Mm -hmm. And because they can put two people in a room instead of instead of one and get all that extra cost. So um, by going last minute, I said, well, I don't want to pay the single supplement. I said, I'll, I'll take the room if I you can waive the single supplement. So I got half price and then no single supplement. Oh, so wow. It was really a good trip. But it, it, it's so amazing because the penguins in Antarctica you talk about a place where the animals aren't have no fear. They have no fear of people. Um, that particular place, we weren't on shore. And you can just walk right among them. You just sit down, and the penguins would come right up to you. I mean, I had penguins that actually got too close. I couldn't photograph them because they were too close to me. You say, move away. And then, then we went uh, off to another area um, on, in Antarctica, and the penguins... When they come ashore, a lot of times their nests aren't right there near near the shore, and they've got to walk through the snow and, and get up. And they create these pathways, and they, they call them penguin highways. And you just go, and you sit down right on the edge of the penguin highway, and the penguins just will walk right by you. And they're so, just so neat to photograph, and uh, it's just a thrill. And I tell people, one of my, I, again, I said, I like to take pictures of sunrises and sunsets. In Antarctica, I took a picture of the sunset. 20 minutes later, I took a picture of the sunrise. It was just like, the sun, it, I mean, it, it didn't get dark. The sun went down <laughs> below the horizon. It came right back up. So I had the sunrise and the sunset within half an hour of each other. It was just, well, that's a great experience. It's, that's incredible. That's a, that's a fantastic trip. I, I've been fortunate. I've been to a few places that have been really good. I've been... Um, Antarctica. I've also been up in the Arctic. Um, I've been to Longyearbyen 
And uh, that was a really great trip because over the years, I've made friends with a number of photographers that are professional photographers, and they had chartered an icebreaker to go out at Longyear BN, Spitsbergen, to photograph polar bears on the permanent ice pack. I got a call from one of the photographers, and they said, we have an opening. One of the people couldn't make it. Do you want to come? And I said, well, I'm not a professional photographer. I said, don't worry. I've already vouched for you. You're, you're welcome to join us if you want to join us. So I went. I had photographers from National Geographic, from the World Wildlife Fund, from Natural Habitat, uh, a German photographer, professional photographer, an English professional photographer. And I thought, oh, this is just too much. They were so nice to me because I tried to stay out of their way. They people are making a living doing this. I'm there just for enjoyment. But they would say, Jerry, come over here. It's a much better photo. I said, I don't want to get in your way. No, come over here. Get right in front of me. <laughs> and then when I got back, I had my photographs. And then I, I get a couple of photograph, photographic magazines. And they got this one magazine. I opened it. And I showed my wife this picture. And I said, look at this photo. She says, that's your photo. I said, no, the photographer was standing right next to me to take the photo. I have the exact same photo. Same scene. Oh, what an experience. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been good. It's really been, I've been twice now photographing polar bears, once to Churchill on uh, Hudson Bay, mm-hmm. and then one side of uh, Spitsbergen. That was really interesting because being on the icebreaker, that, just standing on the bow of the boat, watching the boat go up on the ice shelf and the the weight of the ship breaking the ice. And when it does and it breaks the ice down, it creates a suction and the water comes up and the fish come up. And it's an amazing experience. Hard to top those. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple places left I want to try to get to yeah. that maybe is good. I, I want to go to Iceland. Okay. I've never been to Iceland and I want to go to Galapagos Islands. Galapagos. And I got to do that soon because that's turning into too much of a tourist destination. Yeah. 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 But... We talked about doing that. Now, you mentioned injured animals a little bit earlier. Um, advice, if you come across an injured, like what's good protocol, best practice kind of thing, should you come across an injured animal? Well, that's, I made a note. And one thing I wrote down was the photo, phone number for Crow. Because if you come across an injured animal, the, really the best thing, because we're not professionals on how to handle animals, and very few of us have been trained in how to handle animals, the best thing to do is to call the Center for Rehabilitation of Wildlife on Sanibel Island. They have a number that is active 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it's 239-472-3644. It's extension 222. And um, they will tell you what to do. They will um, find out where you are. They have handlers that handle injured animals. They have transporters. Um, and Fortunately, we don't always have to go all the way over to Crow. There's the uh, Chiquita, yeah, Chiquita, the mm-hmm. animal, Chiquita Animal Hospital. Oh, yeah. You can take them to Chiquita, and then they will transport them over there. Okay. But the only problem with that is that they only go, like, the first thing in the morning. So you got to be there with the injured animal in the morning to go. Well, if an animal gets injured in the evening, you don't want to leave it set. You mm-hmm. want to try to get it somewhere. So at that point... You need to go into Fort Myers, um, but they'll tell you that when you call Crow, they'll tell you what, where to take the animal so that it gets some treatment. But that, that's the best thing to do for, for us. The only 
time that really I tell people that you want to handle animals that could be in danger or not, it's like turtles and tortoises, tortoises crossing the road. Because I, I stopped and got one on Burnt Store Road the other day. The traffic on there, is, for a tortoise to cross that road is, is and make it would be remarkable. So, you know, what you do is you stop, you pick them up, you take them in the direction they're going to the other side of the road. You don't overtake them back as though they just want to go back the same way. But that's the only time I tell people to really handle animals and um, that themselves. So that's okay to pick them up and take it's, them across. It's okay to pick, <clears throat> I tell them, pick up a turtle or a turtle. If it's a snapping turtle, you got to be very careful. Think twice about it. Even there, I, <laughs> I don't grab the snapping turtles. So I, I used to drive around with a shovel that I had, and I could pick them up on the shovel and take them across the road. But <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you stop traffic? Um, I put my four-way flashers on. Oh, good, good idea. That, but uh, you know, if I'm by myself, it's hard to stop traffic and also get the tortoise there. But usually, somebody else will stop. Yeah, and, they see uh, you. That's what happened on Burnt Store Road. Yeah. Um, I stopped, and then a guy with a, a pickup truck pulled up and stopped and blocked the traffic so that we could get the, the gopher tortoise across the road. Where we lived in Tampa, um, we had all these sandhill cranes just walking around. I mean, it's like their neighborhood. <laughs> they would be in crosswalks, and, and, and you just try, you'd stop cars. You know, you're almost like a crossing guard. Just let them go across. They were adorable, but they weren't afraid of us. They're just walking around. So, but they could get hit. Was there anything that you wanted to mention before we're done? You asked about the Audubon Society, and I don't know how much people know about the Audubon Society. The Audubon Eagle Watch program is unique to Florida. This is a Florida initiative uh, for the Audubon Society in the state of Florida that they do it. We don't know of any other state that has an Eagle Watch program like this. It, uh, it started back in 2000, and the first year they had only 22 volunteers. This last year, we had 709 volunteers across the state of Florida. So that's a lot with, you know, 1,600 nesting pairs. Uh, that even averages more than two, two nests per person. Um, I probably do more than most people, but I'm retired, so I can get out there and do it. Uh, the requirement is you have to visit the nest at least twice in a month. And they recommend that you do it for 20 minutes each time. Well, I do them about twice a week uh, to get out and, and do them just because I enjoy doing it. And I like to see the progression of the, of the eagles. I'm always amazed at how fast they grow. Three months from hatching to the time that they're flying. Uh, it's just amazing that they grow that fast and uh, are ready to go out that fast. But uh, for people that don't know, the Audubon Society actually got started by two women in Boston. And the reason they, they formed it uh, was because they wanted to stop the slaughter of birds that were used for the feathers in women's hats. Mm. So the two of them started it. And then the initiative caught on in some other states. And then... Um, that was like in 1895 or 19, and then in 1904, the Audubon Society actually formed, and it's set up to be, you know, protect birds and, and their habitats, and, and they do it through actually protection activities, but they also do it in developing a lot of policies and procedures for for um, protecting the birds. 
I think one of the best things they've done, and the thing that I'm really, really interested in is the Bald Eagles, that, you know, it was the Audubon Society that really took the initiative to ban the use of DOT, uh, DDT in 1960. And, of course, the Bald Eagles were on the endangered species list then. I think it was like 1994, they went from endangered down to threatened, so now they were only threatened. And then it was... uh, I think in 2014 or 2007, one of those two years, the um, federal government dropped them off of the endangered species list altogether. So they're protected now. They're protected by the Federal Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, uh, where now it's it's illegal to kill, possess any part, any feather of a bald eagle or a golden eagle, and it's illegal to um, to disturb the nest. And so. When you asked earlier about, you know, what do you do? Or how do you get close to a nest and see a nest? Uh, the thing that you can't do is you can't disturb the nest. And if you get, if you're caught doing something that is going to disturb the nest, you could be subject to, to federal prosecution. Good. You know, they should keep people away. But it's it's amazing in our lifetime we saw them go from endangered to protected. I mean, yeah, it's. It's incredible. Yeah. That's not a long period of time. To just before coming over here, I, I watch every kind of nature show that is on TV, and just coming over here, I was watching one on the Florida panther. And uh, there again, the Florida panthers were down to where they were less than 20 of them left in Florida. And uh, now they come, they're coming back pretty good, and they've developed this the Florida wildlife corridor. Mm-hmm. So the animals can actually go from the Everglades all the way up into northern Florida now through either public land or private lands that it's connected to create this corridor that they can, because the Florida Panthers need a lot of territory. They need like 200 square miles of space for each Florida Panther. They like to roam. Yeah, they like to roam. Wow. I'm glad they're being safe now too. Well, thank you very much. We're so happy you came. This is is your time of year. The eaglets are getting ready to, if they're not... Yep. fledgling already. Are they jumping around the branches? Yeah, and we got some great horned owls that are nesting. Oh, um, I, I know three great horned owl nests. Two of them have babies in the nest. One is still sitting on eggs. So, But right here in our neighborhood, we're going to have great horned owls. Well, tell them to leave the eagles alone. <laughs> <laughs> no more no, I think the eagles are pretty well set now. Good, um, good. But Well, thanks so much, Jerry. We enjoyed yeah. this. Thank you. I, it was a lot easier than I thought it was yes. going to be. <laughs> You're great. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our Pine Island Experience podcast. If you have any ideas for us, people to interview, or any comments, please feel free to email them to us at pineislandexperience at gmail.com. That's pineislandexperience, all one word, at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us, and you may subscribe to this podcast using all the major catchers like... Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening, and remember, island life is a constant vacation. We'll see you on the next podcast.